0: boating something, you know, so maybe some people stayed home in bed or something like that. Um, But we're really glad uh, for those people who are able to come tonight. And uh, this is our ninth annual reading and reception of the women's committee, uh, literary committee or group. And we're very happy that we are ongoing. This is a good sign. It is our ninth year. Um, there are even a couple of people here tonight who are in the first year's group. and that Alice, who will be reading. Alice Denham and Helen Duberstein, who will be reading. Um, and, and lots of people are here who are um, early on members, just not the very first year. So... I want to say just a couple of things before we go on, and I have to switch the reading order just a little bit around than what I had planned because a couple of people, for various good reasons, have to leave very early, so this is the way that goes. Um, when when we think about what uh, this group means, I know what it means to me, I have an idea of what it means to other people. and. Um, I'm I'm reminded of the fact that yesterday, uh, in the afternoon, I went to a poetry and fiction reading in the outdoors up in one of the gardens that are beautiful in New York, in the Upper West Side and uh, sort of almost like a lost cause since they keep disappearing under the current administration that is not for gardens or writers or arts, you know, and so on, I think. so it was doubly wonderful to be there in that wonderful setting with the flowers and it was at that point half sunny and people were having a very good time and it was great to hear some good literature of one sort and another and after that there was some music and three of the people who happened to be reading i knew which is why i happened to go Um, and one of them was lael silbert and she read Wonderful short story, or two very wonderful short stories. She's not here tonight because um, she got sick in some way, um, evidently last night and had to go to the emergency room and um, and she was sorry that she went because that was on the advice of her doctor, and it was the wrong advice because she didn't get home to eleven thirty today, and it, and it didn't help, and it was a bad experience. so. She's just not able to come today and she sends her regrets and that's unfortunate. Um, and we have, in this um, group, 20 odd members, not all who could be here tonight. Uh, I'm talking about active members. We also have alumni who sometimes show up. Um, and. The way that we do it, other than this reading once a year at Penn is that we have um, a meeting except in the summertime every month at different members' homes and we charge, um, now it's been raised in the last year or so, to $4 each as a as a donation because that person's home uh, is where there's also food and drink. So we like to share the, the cost of all of this um, that people do. And if there's anybody here who I don't know and who is a member, a wo- female, woman, member of Penn, um, and you'd like to join, uh, you should talk with me about it later. Um, there are a few people here, I don't know. I think I know most of the people here. And I want to thank those people here who are my friends who happened to show up and I'm very glad and thank you. Um, I also want to say one couple of words about a couple of people, and and also there's a reason why I said also about the beautiful reading yesterday that I was attending. Um, that epitomizes what the the joy and magic of art is all about. Something like that, an experience like that. I have since received phone calls from people this morning with you know big problems in their lives and all of this who are members, and. I, you know, am well aware of everybody's various difficulties um, and my own, I lost my wallet last night after enjoying that wonderful reading. <laughs> so <laughs> I know that there's another aspect of life out there that we're all familiar with that is difficult. What I think about our group here and maybe other writers groups and so on is it, it's been my experience that I've loved being involved with it all these years. And it's a whole other dimension of life, and it's the part to me that's important about life—the arts. Uh, there's some other things important too, of course. But you know, it makes the difference. It's the magic of living. So um, we hope tonight that we're going to transmit a little bit of this magic. And I want to say that each writer has been given five minutes because we have a number of writers and. Alice Denham and John Mueller, who have been very helpful to us in lots of ways over the years, are also going to be timing people so that, one, I don't have that horrible responsibility to say, stop in the middle, please. Um, And two, because I can't handle everything (laughs) and I don't want to. (laughs) um, But so they are very, uh, you know, graciously suggested that they will do this again this year and I'm very happy about it. now, I want to say a couple of things. Um, one of our members of the past, not so much in the distance, um, Helen Benedict, was bringing a book in that was called The Sailor's Wife. She was bringing it into our workshop. She's no longer a member. She has growing children and, and all sorts of other obligations that don't allow her right now to be a member. But I received, uh, perhaps some of you have received it too, a notice that her book party, this, uh, The Sailor's Wife is being published, and the book party is on uh, Thursday, October 5th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the uh, Teachers and Writers Collaborative, which is on Five Union Square West, and it would be nice if it's the book launch, and maybe any of you might like to come. Um, whether you buy a book or not is not the point. Come and have a good time and see what we've been doing You know, in our writers group too, a little example. Um, also, um, our next meeting is going to be uh, at 5.30 at um, Corin Gerson Ackerman uh, on West 12th Street uh, on f- October 25th, which is a Wednesday. So I'll eventually be sending you postcards about it, but that is our next meeting. And uh, Corinne is here tonight, but she's not, she's decided not to read tonight, but I'm very glad she's here. Um, is Ama- Amina Mir here? Okay. I want to thank Jessica Burnett, who is our coordinator. She's part of Penn's um, staff. And she's the one who helped us put all this together and the um, little feast out there and everything. And so we very much appreciate her help and in a good way. Uh, thank you. Um, I'd like to say it another time. Come up and ask me where all the other people are who are not here tonight. Because they have various reasons why they're not here. Um, and, and some of them will certainly be back in other meetings, um, but they're out of town or sick or, you know, a lot of things. So I'm not going to take the time now to do that. Um, okay. Um, our first reader is a new member who has to leave very shortly to be somewhere else to do with work. Um, but a new member from last year, from, you know, starting last year. I'm very happy to have Nancy Klein in our midst, and she's going to read um, from her book on Cambodia.
1: I, I'm not good at microphones. So if, it's, if I go in and out like that, you know, make gestures or, or whatever, it's extremely difficult, at least for this prose writer, to read something meaningful for five minutes. I mean, that's like, you know, taking one half of a spoonful of, of the whole. Um, but, I, but I'm going to try and be good here. Um, I have about two and a half pages from a 50-page manuscript on on, um, Cambodia that I was working on this summer, um, which is basically about the double journey that I took to Cambodia to visit my son who was a newspaper reporter in Phnom Penh. I went to Cambodia to see the country, obviously, but also it turned out to be a journey into my son's adult life. And that's, that's basically what the piece is about. And I don't know how much of a sense of it you'll get from these few pages, but we'll find out. This is the fourth little section, and it is the second temple at Angkor that I went to. It's called Sunset at Phnom Bakheng. That first evening, Gabriel takes me to see the sunset from the top of the temple mountain Phnom Bakeng. This temple is carved into the rock of an actual hill, which is rare here since this area of Cambodia is as flat as Indiana, given over to parched fields during the hot season, which is beginning now, and rice paddies and the jungle. Farther away toward Thailand, actual mountains rise, but in the Angkor region, most temple mountains are built on man-made hills, then terraced up and up and up against the sky in imitation of Mount Meru, the sacred abode of the gods. The highest and vastest of the temple mountains is Angkor Wat. Here at Bakheng, parched weeds and seedlings cover the hill, and the overgrown stairs that lead up to the top are as narrow as curbstones or the high thin steps of Mayan pyramids and like the latter, they've been hacked out at two foot intervals straight up. Although it's nearly time for sunset, the Kampuchean heat weighs like a boulder on the back. At the bottom of the hill, just before we start the straight up vertical climb, I spot a dust covered elephant. He wears a platform on his back with seating for six. A group of Japanese tourists are clamoring aboard. I'd love to take an elephant ride, I say, but this seems a diversion from our purpose hill here, besides which Gabriel has surged ahead and is already halfway up the mountain. I've been going to the gym, he calls to me over his shoulder. When he turns back to find that I'm gasping for breath and don't know whether I can make it, he says, but mom you climbed the mountain up in Woodstock. (laughs) This was 15 years ago perhaps and it was just a mountain not a monument constructed to humble those of us who are not gods. Gabriel seems to feel genuine consternation at my decline But after a while he remarks that his father when he was visiting refused to climb all the way up. I made him he adds When I finally reach the top prostrate drenched to the skin I discover that the elephant I coveted at the bottom of the hill has brought his load of tourists here all the way up They sit on his back breathing normally about to disembark I cannot know it in this moment because I haven't visited the major temples yet, but the Japanese up on their elephant resemble Shiva on his Garuda, or the Buddha seated on the head of the seven-headed serpent who supports the world. On our return trip down the hill, we will follow the great beast's path, a kinder, gentler route than ours, which winds around the mountain in a downward corkscrew, navigable. Up top, we find a sea of tourists, but very few of them Americans, so even they add to the foreignness of the place. A number of them wear identical t-shirts that Gabriel interprets for me. These announce in Khmer an international conference on landmines that has been in progress for the past week. And none too soon. Cambodia has more landmines planted in it than any other country in the world. A legacy of our war and the Khmer Rouge's. Lacking one of these t-shirts, I buy a pair of pants with elephants all over them for $7. Several days later in the central market in Phnom Penh, I will buy my daughter a two-piece tie-dyed pantsuit for $7. This seems to be the standard tourist fee on any object you can charge more than $1 for. Always what I buy costs $1 or $7. I never hear an in-between price quoted, but then I never bargain. Gabriel and I sit sweatily side by side on an ancient broken wall. We bounce our heels against it waiting for the sunset, which because Cambodia is so close to the equator happens every day the whole year round between six and 6.30. He points out the distant towers of Angkor Wat. He tells me more about the last days of the Khmer Rouge. This story is groundbreaking, he says. It will change history. He's very excited. Suddenly, the red sun starts to fall straight down the sky, then disappears beyond a distant shimmering thread of water, miles and miles across the dark green ocean of the jungle. That's my five minutes.
2: Thank you.
0: Now, it's fascinating, I'm very eager to hear more. Nancy is um, at Columbia and um, everybody here does all kinds of interesting things besides all their interesting writing. Uh, but I, I may not remember this second everything that everybody does, because <laughs> I'm trying to remember my own name. Um, so. Uh, And thank you very much. I was really happy that you are able to come even for a short while tonight. Um, our next reader um, has been a member for a number of years. And uh, by the way, I should say that in our group, we all write different kinds of material. So you could expect to hear poetry or fiction or memoirs or essays or novels, you know. I mean, any number of different types of work people do, and everybody's welcome, whatever they're writing, because I find it all interesting in in different ways, and it seems to work out in our group like that. We like hearing different kinds of things. Um, And I also want to say, in case you wouldn't be aware of this, that for tonight, of course, we're just reading. We're having a reading, but in our regular workshop uh, meetings, we have readings and critiques of whoever is, you know, reading that day. So that's the difference in that sense of what happens tonight. Okay. Our next reader is Michelle Laporte, and she too is not able to stay for the whole evening, um, for work things too. So I mean, everybody, some, you know, at different times has all these time parameters. So that's our problem. But we have to do what we can do. So Michelle. Uh, is a wonderful poet and uh, an artist and uh, also wonderful Um, and so I think what we're going to hear tonight is poetry is that right oh okay good so here we go thank you
3: Thank you so much, Ilsa. It should be noted that Ilsa is one of my real mentors in this life. And uh, there's no way that I could um, tell her how grateful I am for her inspiration and support of me. So that wasn't unbiased, what you just heard from her. (laughs) And also, I'd like to say that Cambodia and such a vivid description is a very tough act to follow. I regret that I have to leave early. I'd love to hear everyone else's readings, so thank you for allowing me to read in this order. This year, I had the tremendous privilege of studying with Patricia Carlin, a poet that some of you may be familiar with who teaches at the New School University. She teaches poetic forms, and so I thought I'd read a villanelle, a pantoum, a sestina, and uh, Freeform something or another. Uh, Not that these are uncorrupted. They're not. (laughs) They're sort of like a Villanelle. (laughs) (laughs) Operating Instructions. This is a Villanelle. Tease her foolish with boots of paradox, merciless in their splendid confusion, true characteristic of seasons with equinox. Her appetites require the truly unorthodox. Peeking over your event horizon, ply her dark fantasy with veils of paradox. With vision vast outside the box, beyond all trace of convention, this the very watermark of seasonal equinox. Sing vivid manifestos, flush with ultravox, and just when her glance reveals evasion, Fix her gaze with tortoise frames of paradox. Success riding solely upon degree of heterodox, there is no time for hesitation. Yet another sure sign of seasons in equinox. Cultivate then a slight sense of flummox, sprinkled with moments of radical attention. Feed her with glimpses, silk briefs of paradox like those sometimes found in seasons of equinox. We just had another equinox. This was the spring one. Pantum. Pure gravity. Bulb of the lover's calf laid next to her own. Ecstasy of an early armchair upon again bearing the weight of lover's body. None other, though hundreds since, centuries between. Ecstasy of a horseshoe armchair once again to hold this adored one, unmistakably. Known ghostly hundreds since, centuries gone by, yet circumstances unite them once more. Unmistakably to hold only cherished one. Enfold scented torso in her open horseshoe rail. Time circle mystery unites them both in a modern moment. Seat raised aloft on lines resting in space. Embrace silken scented torso in her bliss curving rail. Perfect narrow back. It's carved twining dragon's spare seat raised in space. A Ming silhouette. Ah, such sweet the pressure on a worn, woven heart. Throat carved of twining dragons, again at love's slender back, tiniest slipper turned just slightly as ages before. So blissful the weight upon this cane-woven heart, core level for an instant in time's steam-bent arc. Oh, matchless foot, slightly turned as centuries before. Rest once more against my own. That noble circumstance refolds us one into other. No time, no space passed between ghostly all. Sestina. This is a Sestina. Encounter. Only one. Are you too far beyond any mere sum of sparkling collections, more or less? Are you careless too with the hard won objects of more obscure but two-minded desires? As some now lost to others, many are yet sought for any price, not less than that of some fire opals. Like one once rescued by two crested cranes on a moor, mirage like themselves in a blue morning, their long litany barely audible and hitherto unknown in these the less subtle realms of, say, one-note lonesome acquisitionists, some of whom vowed never more even to listen once the jewel-bearing animation itself became lyricless and sung by cockatoos. O lover, then, are you too ornamented, handsome? Or are you now seedless yourself, mortal finally like any other one? Curious yellow one, You, too, could ask any ransom more splendid than priceless. Do I have time for one more? One more. Okay. This is an old one from 1997. Reclining Nude. Bless the bodies of men, their squarishness, their opacity. Oh, bless the solid-state bodies of men. Their angularity, their slowness, bless them. How very like the earth they carry, men's bodies are. The way the arms, the backs of men, shift languid in repose like a pile of stones. Sand sifting time itself and the weight, the density of their very bones, ah, bless them, their rough skin. Baking in sunlight, cracked slightly over brick. This, the flesh of men, the land, their infinite carpet forest of hairs, strapped with nets, earth but not planetary exactly. With hardly a thought of the celestial, his own vapors rising, our breaths from street pores leave a thin sheen of oil, all behind just to catch the light beneath these loons still dancing where the lake used to be. Thank you very much. My apologies to any males in the audience.
0: Thank you very much, Michelle. I, I find when, when people write poetry in various particular forms, um, sometimes it's harder to understand on first hearing. So it's the kind of thing where I would like to, to read the poems over and study them a little bit. It's very interesting to me. And I noticed, you know, all the wonderful things you did with OX, you know, in that first one, for instance. Um, But you see, you have to see them on the paper, too, I think, because the forms show up more like that than what people do. Um, But that's terrific. And um, our next reader. Is Alice Denham, who's, I know, going to read something totally different than what you've been hearing. Uh, and we're very happy that Alice reads whenever. She's always presenting us with very uh, unique kind of work. Um, and she's reading mainly how i've fashioned the order of these different people is when they contacted me that they wanted to come and be part of this so i i I mean every year i have to think of new ways how to do this and be fair and everything else so i had you know that's how in general the order is today um but i also just want to say that we had you know they were necessary to make a couple of exceptions about things so but it's much better that Alice reads now, because then she will be free, besides that we'll have the pleasure of hearing her read, to do the timing and not feel nervous and all those kind of things, you see. So it's important.
2: What she's saying is we get special consideration because we time things. (laughs) Uh, Last last, uh, September I read from my collection of Mexican short stories, I read a rather light story about two taxi drivers, two jokers whose ambition is to be hitmen. Now that collection has been, uh, my, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a little minute, can you hear me now? No, no. Sorry. No. Am I at the right place, Joan? Uh, yes.
4: Well,
1: you,
2: can, you can put it a little bit closer to the How about that? Much All right, this is from a collection of Mexican short stories. Last year I read a light. One about two men whose ambition is to be hitmen. Uh, this year I'm going to read a very serious dark story. This collection is being shown by my agent, but I'm even now finishing another story. So we'll see about all of this. This is a rather different tale. All these, I've been going to Mexico for more years than you can believe. I often say 30, but it's really 40. So. <laughs> And uh, this is called, this is on a... On your mother's back. On my mother's back, yeah, that's right. This is a, a very short, 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 called Hero, or in Spanish, Edoe. Once in a Mexican village, there lived an idealistic young manta worker who dreamed of a better day. The fabrica produced fine, sturdy manta cloth used for clothes and curtains. This made the owners very rich and the workers very poor. No other real jobs existed in the village, so the owners paid starvation wages. In El Norte, workers had unions, as Esteban knew. Though he was 27, Esteban was the size of a 14-year-old altar boy, which he had been because he could read. His brother, wet backing in Dallas, sent him newspaper articles about AFL-CIO strikes for higher wages. Union members were rich. They could own houses, even cars. Esteban determined to start a union of Monta workers. For six months or so, he confided secretly to other Monteros to see how big a group he could gather. To his surprise, they all cast their lot with him, when, when then elected him um, union leader, whom they elected union leader. Their list of demands was simple, a small increase in wages for all. The owners, of course, refused to meet with them. The owners recognized no union. With Esteban leading, they picketed before the offices of the owners, who were not there who stayed away. After work on Saturday, the brave Esteban led them to the family Palacio, where the owners live, which resided on an entire square block of the village. Shouting, waving signs, waving, "Pagajusto, paga Justo! pay Justo! They marched back and forth before the Palacio. No one appeared. At work on Monday, Esteban declared they could strike, and closed down the factory. Instead, the workers voted to march through the Sokolo, the square, the following Saturday after work to rouse public sympathy. Go slowly, Esteban agreed with their new union. Workers strutted their signs aloft, and villagers chida sh- uh, shouted, Vaya, Vaya! <laughs> Sunday evening, Esteban climbed to the mirror door for the sunset to plan their next move. Suddenly, four policia surrounded him, accused him of dealing dope. They hauled him handcuffed into the one police car in town, slung him into a cell. Esteban hollered he'd done nothing, and they knew it. He shouted so loud the police, policia feared he could be heard in the Sokolo. They gagged him, informed him he had to confess to save his life. Confess you smuggle marijuana, cocaina, eroina, shouted the federale, not the local cops. They removed Esteban's gag and he was silent. This went on for half an hour. We found eroina in your pocket, two federales told him. Esteban didn't speak. Take him away, the federales said in disgust, make him confess. They forgot the gag and Esteban hollered when he saw the electrodes. The policía bound the gag tightly around Esteban's mouth and head. They pushed him onto the metal cot and tied his arms and legs to the sides, spreading his legs. In a businesslike manner, they attached the electrodes to his testicles. Then they turned them on. A little jolt and Esteban jumped like a fish. Confess! screamed El Jefe. Another longer jolt and he jerked like he was pulling away from his body. Confess! Confess! Louder and louder, the policia bellowed. Another longer jolt and Esteban's face lost all its color. They removed the gag. Now you'll confess, El Jefe informed Esteban. Esteban died. Of course, El Jefe explained to El Presidente, the mayor, it was a perfectly routine torture. Mistaking their intentions, Esteban had been rude enough to succumb. On the anniversary of his death, villagers honored Esteban, the latest of many brave Mexicans to confront reality. On the anniversary of his death, the villagers stormed the Presidencia and the carcel and burned everything that would burn. They torched desks and tossed them down the marble stairway, Swung hammers at pillars. El Presidente and El Jefe escaped through old 18th century tunnels built for the purpose, dressed as women. The villagers' rage spent, life went on as usual. Nothing changed till the village went into real estate. By then, the Monte factory was closed. The rich became developers and hired the factory workers. As peones. Their colonial palacios sold for incredible prices to foreigners impressed with crumbling arches and patios. Las esposas, the wives of the peones, got jobs as criadas, maids. Probably there's been no torture in the carcel for eight to ten years during the village's prosperous growth. Esteban's spirit lives in the stained glass dome of the old church, silently screaming for justice, say the townspeople, no longer villagers. Others claim his spirit underlies La Manta gated luxury villas, where his factory once stood. We have no heroes, the Mexican saying goes, only dead heroes. That's a true story.
0: Alice, thank you, that was quite riveting. And I know that that's ju- it, it represents what happens all over the world in different ways, but it's uh, it's a wonderful thing to, to have it so narrowed down to a specific place and a specific people because it brings it home. It's just like, you know, making something very real. When it's too huge people can't comprehend. You did it beautifully, thank you. Um our next reader is Carol Hibald. And I'm very happy you know, that she's here tonight. I'm very happy that all of us are here tonight because I you know, I find it a great treat to hear All this different kind of writing and from very good writers um and she reads um tonight she's going to read poetry but uh, she also writes um novels and novellas and all sorts of other wonderful work has been published in the international the pen international uh, literary magazine among other places And she will tell us she's just finished uh, a book that is going to be published, and she will mention If anybody, by the way, any of the writers want to say something about their own work briefly, that would be nice, OK? So our next one is is, um, Carol Hebald.
5: I'll begin with um, the epigraph to my forthcoming memoir entitled The Heart Too Long Suppressed, which is going to be published by Northeastern University Press in spring 2001. The poem was originally published in Confrontation Magazine and it's called First Prayer. The heart too long suppressed cannot come forth. Finds comfort in memories of snow In poems that grieve to grow Then stir my slow conception Quiet, oh how quiet The tides resume in me Thrust me back to see The soul outside my mind Thrice blessed Released from what it longs for To something it has I live in a dream world by choice. I'm sorry, slightly embarrassed, and ravished. Letter to an artist aboard a ship somewhere near Stockholm, you were so different from your words and so proud, well, proud. The ripe, indolent women adored you. On the last night you danced, an aging countess tried to comfort me. It was your grace that hurt. So innocent you were of what you gave to me. Come to the hearth, be seated. Permit me to press your hand. Our needs are not concerned with the Ten Commandments. Tell me who you are. I often think of you. Our work should cut, it shouldn't bleed. It's as necessary to us as breathing, how passionately we spoke, how well. We had a moment there, but it was off camera. And on that same ship, fantasy in a floating cafe somewhere near Southampton. One. The sea is breathing now, and a gull drunk on the wind bears a nerve in me. The sea is breathing now, and my lord is dancing, severe, proud, clear as the skies. Still the music of those lips, that radiant form. The sea is breathing, and my lord is dancing. Two. The Austrian countess is laughing. Her husband was buried at sea. They say his corpse slid into the waves just as the sea monster drew out her breast and gave suck to her young. The countess drinks with an aging queen who praises flowers for responding blandly to the onset of frost. And my lord skips like a calf among the evening flowers. Thank you. That's
0: stunning work. I'm really happy we had the chance to hear that. Um, And and, you know, everything that people are reading, it makes me very curious to hear more of what they're doing and in, in those projects and all of that. So I I think I'm going to read next, I I get nervous too like everybody else and I'm going to read some poetry. Um, I'm going to read poetry that I wrote this summer, it's all new, and the first poem is written in Oregon and the other three poems are written um, here in New York except this summer. but they're for a project that is called Zoo International. And it's um, going to be set to music by Lou Rogers and, and performed in April. Um, it's Art Song Cycle. And the first one is, just stands on its own, nothing to do with music or anything. Um, and they're all new work. Um, first one is called Living with Demons and Drink. Um, And if anybody, uh, speaking of drink, um, would care to, I would so much appreciate somebody, maybe just bring me a glass of wine. I'd have, I'd have. um, Oh, thank you. Um, Okay. Living with the Demons and Drink. Two minds, each as agile as a leaping frog, bright as a diamond chip, sharp as serrated steel, by evening are gradually stilled, hazy, fog creeping in similar to the Pacific outside the glass windows that overlook the gray wooden deck and below. The ocean I observe each night from a sheltered place nesting inside a hilltop house deep in the trees where my friends live. It is a stunning house, gray shingled but modern, open and angled, creating indoor mazes I notice, along with beauty, there is no lack of liquor here. The bottles hidden in the closet are brought out by my friends each evening like honored guests. Vodka and scotch to accompany the crossword puzzles and double cross each avidly pursues before dinner while I read, sipping just one glass of liquid fire, not wanting to be overwhelmed. Then as we dine, possibly as a civilizing influence, they serve wine. So agreeable with the good food and talk, I find. Soon after, ice clinks and tall glasses of strong drink they imbibe, each on a separate sofa, singular and solitary, lost in reading mysteries or horror stories and frequent forays to the bottle till the middle of the night. I read something lighter while in a comfortable lean back black chair, abstaining from fear, mysteries and drink, wanting to stay alive a long while into my future. At midnight, when the lights are turned off and brains befogged, my friends have gone to separate rooms in this large house, ready to be soothed by sedative sleep. I lie wide awake in my bedroom, white walls now cloaked in darkness, wondering what demons pursue them in daylight, hidden from my view. Mine come as I sleep, the mind in dreamlike state, not under my control. When I wake, my demons are still with me. It takes a while to bury them in a good book I read, till the sun rises, and my friends do too. And on a lighter note, um, I wrote these poems, this Zoo International is the overall title, and there are more to it than these three, but, but um, I kept journals and different trips that I took to Europe and so on, and, and that gave me ideas about uh, doing this project. Um, so, first one is Zoo International, Antwerp, Belgium. Famous for its diamond dealers, sailors carousing in body bars, and painter Peter Paul Rubens, Antwerp can bedazzle you. Especially its zany, carefree zoo, peopled by unique animals cavorting in open spaces and giggling at the animals' antics. Little boys with innocent faces, but very short pants that showed off their lovely legs. I watched them all. Children and nature's creatures I had never seen before—the special features of wild, long-haired boars, boars, harp eagles, the tiny African foxes resembling two owls. But when I saw an Australian wallaby, small kangaroo with an infant in her pouch, wearing her baby like a backpack in front, she and her offspring were as rare to me as an emu. She was leaping around, covering ground. In my heart, seeing this rare jewel, I jumped for joy. Diamonds were nothing compared to a happy little boy and a wanton wallaby with child. And the next one is Corinth, Greece. To shake myself free of total immersion in Greek history, mythology, and archeology span while in Corinth, I found the only camel in Greece, far away from Arabian deserts. When I saw him, This king of camels was sitting on his haunches, fancied up for the occasion. Though hordes of flies buzzed around and settled on his nose, I settled on his back. Was his exile the flies, or I perched on him, no sheik, just a tourist, the last straw? As his keeper nudged him to rise up to have our picture taken, the cantankerous camel emitted the most amazing sounds Thunder's wind accompanied groans and shrieks that rose to the skies as well as barnyard belches from the mouth opened so wide I could see he needed an orthodontist badly. <laughs> I understood his dyspepsia, for though I was taken with him, I had no desire for this capricious Corinthian camel to sit on my back. <laughs> and the last one I'm reading. Tonight is from Zoo Internationals. Amstel Park, Holland. We are quarreling over needs unmet as we drive to Amstel Park near Amsterdam to see the wild and cultivated flowers there. They are lovely, but the surprise we find is a pool for sea otters. Many swim around, but one adorable baby suffering from the heat lies exhausted at the pool's edge. His mama leaves the water many times to plant kisses on his baby's snout. When the keeper comes to feed them all in the water, mama declines to eat. She comes out to join her baby at pool's edge, lying down sideways next to him. He snuggles, puts his little face into her fat belly, and lies there content. She is content too. No struggle here to get what you want. Love overcomes all. If only life were so simple for humans. Thank you very much. Okay. Um. Okay. Um Maria Aralaga is next. Um, Maria is here from Costa Rica, I, I'm sorry, from Puerto Rico. <laughs> I, I am sometimes from Costa Rica, I mean I go there a lot. <laughs> uh, and I am very delighted that she's here. She made a special trip to come here from Puerto Rico and she teaches at the university there and writes millions of fascinating different kinds of work. That a lot of it is published poetry and fiction and other work, and translations and so on, you know. I don't know whether she's going to read poetry or fiction. She's going to tell us. But I want to say that she's been a member since early, very early on, um, and so whenever she has leaves of absence, you know, whatever it's called, all the different ways that she can be here in New York, we are very happy. And um, so, but she's made, I think, a special trip to come into to this reading tonight. So, we're very happy to greet Maria no? I'm
6: I'm trying to do this standing up so you can hear better, but I don't seem to be able to. It's out Thank you, John. It's great to be here. Gosh, it's such a great group. I'm so grateful. Anyway, China, a Chronicle. For Chen Chaiamin and Wei Ning Ling winners of Olympic gold in weightlifting for women at the 2000 Australian Games. Genghis the Mongol and his bloodthirsty entourage slaughtered and burned to satiety everything in sight. A bit later, his grandson Kubla heard an enticing song while addition of a splendid phoenix attired in purple feather finery Wrigley spoke to him. And so it was that a magnificent structure came into being. Metaphor ever devised to challenge the needs, pleasures, and desires of humans everywhere. Marco Polo was dazzled. Within these walls, he wrote, stands the palace of the great Khan, the most extensive that has ever yet been known. Colors tripping, as good as it gets, took us to the erotic depths of a dream. Who would not want to feed on honeydew and drink the milk of paradise? From sanity to the search for the occult rosebud, also rose was double form. With the citizen cane, the beat went on. Very near the this, this enduring invention rose Camber League, City of Cairns. Under Yang Li, son of Xu Jian Han, founder of the Ming Dynasty, this northern capital became Beijing. This summer in Beijing, I heard a heart with an utterly strong beat. It conjured the remarkable edge of the metaphor. Very much at home in this contemporary realm, a team of humanity in perpetual anarchic movement seduces me with its rich intensity. vehicles, people on foot, cars, trucks carting whatever is necessary for human survival, scooters, and the ubiquitous bikes become a sight as powerful as any. Transit cubs awkwardly stare ahead. These adult toy soldiers, modeling plasticity, studiously programmed to stand seriously upright go completely unnoticed by the maelstrom they are supposed to direct. Our guide explains that in China, driving is considered an elite occupation for the talent it requires. At Tian Tan, the temple of heaven, I feel indeed quite close to the ultimate celestial height it represents. Perfect love, art, perhaps. I allow myself to be charmed by the hardy people that have taken over the priceless sites and monuments of China. Beijing wakes up, dancing the tango. Traditional Eastern rhythms bring elaborate motions as a counterpoint to the serene movements of Tai Chi. Tiananmen Square competes favorably with any of the great spaces of civilization. Here, on October 1st, 1949, Mao Zedong proclaimed a people's republic. I see myself back in time, a young idealist, a would-be leftist, fervently reading Mao's little red book, along with Che Guevara's diaries. In the happening happy 60s, there were moments of zany, reckless fun. Rewind the tape to see my gay friend Carlos and I burning along the gleaming corridors of Tiffany's shouting, viva la revolucion. One of the members of our group asks Ada, our guide, how many people were killed in 1989 when army tanks and soldiers moved against pro-democracy demonstrators at Tiananmen. She doesn't recall she answers because she was way too young at the time. At Tiananmen, we confront the contradictions, the unsettling lack of human rights. Meanwhile, the Chinese yearned for contact with the outside world. On a trip to Shushuang, the Venice of the East, an old resort near Shanghai, people gave us their thumbs up approval as we sailed around the canals, munching on the local specialty, slices of boiled pig with a tender, sticky, tasty skin that reminded me of lechong, one of Puerto Rico's delicacies. China's marvels are unfathomable. The Great Wall is truly one of the wonders of the world. It was a very uphill climb. On that cool, misty, windy day, I felt vulnerable at the thought of bursting into flight, wild and self-assured like Thelma and Louise, perhaps more like Progni and Philomena, safe, at least. Something special happened to me at Fengdu, the city of ghosts. Set on the shores of the Yangtze River, I made my way up, and suddenly, the life went out of me. A weird tasting burger I had the night before the Holiday Inn in Chongqing, the prevented malaria pill I took that morning, my low blood pressure acting out, heat stroke, exhaustion. I could not move. While conscious, I was clearly in another dimension and scared. They came. A woman dressed in traditional peacock blue massaged my head, forehead, neck. Other women offered hot water, a Chinese cure-it-all, as well as a tiny cup of tea. They wiped my sweat and improvised a circle of fans to give me air. I lived. As they waved me goodbye, never mind my belief in angels, I became part Chinese.
0: Thank you very much. Um, this is wonderful work and it makes me feel like I was there with you some way in China, you know, and, and all that. It's fascinating, uh, at least you made us feel that we were traveling with you in the mind, to, you know, that's very important. Um, and, and hope to hear more of all that work. And I would say we take three minutes break if anybody wants to get food or drink, okay? Just three minutes to just, okay. Take your seats, we're gonna go on. five more people to read, so please everybody come back, and then we can, as you say, we can hang out and eat and drink, but we first need to do the reading. (laughs) And and it's very worth doing the reading. You'll hear some wonderful writing. Um, As I say, we have five more people, and Okay. Uh, as I said, I was doing this um, from when I heard from people and so on. Uh, so the next person to read is Iris Litt. And Iris writes also um, poetry and fiction, and she runs a writer's group up in, around the Woodstock area uh, of uh, two different writer's groups. One is poetry, one is fiction, if anybody's up there at some point in the year. Wants to be involved with that, um, and so it's a really good group of groups. and And her own writing is really good. You'll enjoy what you're going to hear. So.
4: Elsa had her wallet stolen yesterday, I think I'll read some of my stolen wallet poems first.
0: (laughs) I won't need to
4: write any. Okay, right, right. (laughs) I know some of you have heard some of these, but you have to listen again. (laughs) This one is a Gypsy Children, and it's going to be in confrontation in the fall issue that's coming out. You can tell from these poems what happened. (laughs) When my purse disappeared from under the table in the sidewalk cafe in Firenze, everyone said, it's the gypsy children again. Since no head showed above the table, you're under three feet high and probably no more than four years old, small for your age, poor nutrition. But your skill, your brain are greater than mine and so is your need. I hope when you brought them my purse, they gave you food. And here's a sequel to it, and this will be in on the bus. I don't know if you're familiar with that magazine, but um, it's kind of a nice one, I think. And this will be in the fall issue. It's called Lost and Forensic. The polizia asked me. I guess you say polizia, an Italian? Polizia? No, polizia. Yeah, I know.
6: An Italian. Yeah, polizia.
4: Okay. I forget which language. I The Polizia asked me to list what I'd lost. My dollars, my lira, my checks, my passport, Kleenex, address book, and more. And yes, my Italian phrase book, but at least I already knew how to shout, Polizia aiuta, help! (laughs) (laughs) And at least I had left in my room my plane ticket, Firenze to Rome, Rome to New York. So I still had the best thing you or I could have, a ticket to home. (laughs) Okay, here are a couple of depressing ones. (laughs) This is called Flight 261. What I feel awful about is that you probably packed as I'm doing today. Decided to take the long blue flowered dress in case something dressy came up, left the shampoo behind, you'd buy some, did the whole packing dance. You'd take that one book, the computer disc with your life's work, the white sandals. Decisions, decisions, but you felt you'd done well, were well prepared for the life in the sun. But this one was a decision you couldn't make. The huge plane spiraled out of control, smashed the water right off the very beach I'm headed for. You could control the blue dress, but not the instant shortly after you left Bayarda when you left yourself and became part of the blue water. Well, this one is more cheerful. I think I did read it here once. If I were a fish. The label the lady pasted on the package says "scrod Cod, fresh from North Atlantic waters. And I think of the fish swimming free in the fresh North Atlantic. What did they mean? Cape Cod, Cornwall, Iceland? Where did my fish swim before he died for me? The second package says, fresh catfish fillet US grade A farm raised. At first it sounds better to me. He was given a brief peaceful life, free of the huge North Atlantic waves, the pesky boats, the voracious fishermen. He lived in no peril till his doom was delivered. But I think if I were a fish, I prefer the waves and the danger. My catfish was bred to be dead, but my squad cod lived as we do with choice and chance and the illusion that he is free. (laughs) Okay, a short depressing one. (laughs) The nursing home. (laughs) My mother arrived in my vintage convertible with the top open under a bright sky with the sun on her face. The social workers thought it a gas, a hip entrance, a light touch in their heavy day. My mother left in the dark in a box with no wheels, the top closed. Um, shall I do one more? Unpacking my old office building on the Madison Avenue bus, this will also be in confrontation this fall. Every day for 30 years, I went into that mine in which the elevator went up, not down. It was a word mine in which I dug for words that sell, yet between the writings of those clever lines, poetry poured from me, poured like light, from eyes, skin, mind, so bright that my boss saw it, sensed the poems, and sent me home. In other words, I was fired with enthusiasm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Iris, I loved those poems and I identified in different ways with how you expressed it and what you thought. And I too, you know, worked for when I was in my twenties for advertising agencies and magazines and all kinds of things like that. And I, too, wrote, on occasion, poetry underneath all the million papers <laughs> that are supposed to turn out other kinds of work. And I didn't get much discovered that way, you know, except that because I looked busy every minute and I met my deadlines, you know. But, but even so, um, it was a, a terrible conflict, and we must all probably have that in different ways of how we do our work. Over the years, that you want to do your own work desperately, but you also want that roof over your head, so you you know you're juggling everything, forever. So, you know. Now, uh, oh good. Okay. Right. Well, good, well, yeah, advertising, that the part that you don't have to deal with all the rest of it, the part where that's creative in some way, I, one has to say is fun. I used to write things like names of products, and God knows what, among anything else. And that was fun to me. Or, or they had once um, some competitor to Monk's Bread, which probably you never heard of now, but it was a huge thing all these years ago. And I had to come up in one day with, I think, 50 different names for this product that was like monk's bread. <laughs> and, you know, just so you, just you thought, you know, you racked your brains about medieval times and, you know, everything else. But, but in a certain way, it was a lot of fun to me. I have to say it's a lot more interesting than cleaning the house or something. <laughs> just a little more pressure. So... <laughs> Um, Elaine Kraft Altman or just Elaine Kraft, you might mention um what you want um, Elaine is going to be reading from a book that the D- Dalkey archives just reissued I believe is this the paperback edition Elaine it's only in paperback, it's only in paperback. okay uh, so it's newly this year, uh, released again. It's called Princess of 72nd Street. Now, Elaine writes all kinds of fascinating work, which I've heard some of, um, you know, in prose, and even I think you brought in sometimes some work from plays and so on, theater work. Um, But let us see what was so interesting some years ago, that was when this book was first published. And what what is again so interesting that they wanted it out there again? I, I don't know if Jockey Archives was the first publisher. Is that it wasn't right? New directions. New directions, right? Okay, so that's great. So we're happy to to welcome Elaine Kraft. Is that right? Yes,
7: the book that's come back and what's interesting to me the princess of 72nd street west she she is the princess of 72nd street from Riverside Park all the way up to Central Park West nothing to do with the east <laughs> and it's it's interesting that it came out the first time when I met the man who was to be the father of my daughter that's what I'm I'm calling him now. And then here it comes when I'm saying goodbye to the father of my daughter. Fair, I find that very interesting. So it's like I've been put back into the past now, in a way. there are two the two main characters in this book are Ellen, who is very critical, conservative, and she's looking for a husband, and Esmeralda, who is free, and she doesn't care what people think about her, and they're both part of the same person, and they're often at odds with each other. And every six months, Ellen has an attack of what she calls radiance, and that's when everything becomes beautiful and she loses her self-control and she sleeps with a lot of men, and she's just very happy. but she gets into trouble from that. <laughs> now here, What's the, name of the, book? the Princess of 72nd Street. It's in the bookstores now, hidden under K, so no one knows it's there. Yeah. Yes. Yes? Yes, okay. <laughs> Here she meets a magician on the corner of 72nd Street. Oriole was standing in front of Saul the Taylors dressed in a black velvet jacket and plum-colored velvet pants. His hair was long and blonde. Fluttering doves appeared and disappeared from inside his coat sleeves. I fixed the coat and it was no easy task. No, indeed, Saul the tailor whispered proudly to the people gathered around Oriel. The people of 72nd Street were not interested in who made the coat, but in Oriole's exquisite performance. The doves flew up in the air or perched on Oriole's head, and then, as if by some mysterious prompting, they vanished. Many eyes were seen looking for them up in the sky, to the right or left. With a faint smile perpetually on his lips, Oriel found the doves up his sleeve. The crowd stared at him in amazement and applauded. He was tall and strangely built. Narrow shoulders were hunched up to his ears and thrust forward and his legs turned inward Long toes stuck out of black leather sandals. Their pointed toenails curved toward the ground. Oriel's eyes were half closed in a sort of ecstasy. People gave him money that he collected in a bag made of tapestry beginning to unravel at the top. Something about this man both fascinated and repelled me. His cheeks were slightly rouged, and he had silver nail enamel on his fingernails. A silver star was drawn on his forehead. Underneath the black velvet jacket, he wore a satin shirt with tan and pink flowers painted on a dark background. It was to this man, Oriel, an illusionist, that I told the truth. As if by mutual agreement I remained while the doves were placed gently inside a cage that had been lying on the pavement, Oriel bowed to the people as they slowly dispersed. Then he and I began to walk toward Broadway. I am Oriel, he said in a very soft voice. I am Princess Esmeralda of West 72nd Street, I answered realizing that it was the first time I had said this name to anyone or even spoken it aloud. My real name, Ellen, the one given to me by my mother and the one I am known by and used to sign checks with is not my true name. Esmeralda or Princess Esmeralda came to me early, perhaps on my first or second voyage to 72nd Street, while I was still living with George, master of the the eternal dissertation. (laughs) I don't know why this name came to me. Its exact origin is unimportant, but that it is my inner name is a simple fact. Something about Oriel called forth the truth from me about this and about all things. As I had known intuitively my name and title seemed perfectly natural to him. It was an important day in my life the day I met Oriel. It was a month after the sixth radiance. It was after I was dining with Alan and somehow overlaps the end of Alan. Yet I am not exactly certain unless there is a gap somewhere in time. For how is it possible that I could have been with Alan the lawyer and Oriel the illusionist at the same time. <laughs> and yet it is, days being endless and plentiful and even bountiful sometimes. I'm going to skip the next little part about Oriel and read about their Orioles making love. When Oriel made love with Esmeralda, it was with, with reluctance. An inevitable self-chastisement. He claimed to be waiting for the time when he would no longer be trapped on the physical plane, which was false. This was too much, not only for Ellen, but for Princess Esmeralda, particularly since Oriole, seeming to be pure and inexperienced, devised sinister and decadent aspects to their lovemaking. Sometimes he put a thin black stocking over his face or had them both wear identical brasiers made of silver mesh or pasted feathers all over his body from head to toe. <laughs> Endless were these, were these varieties. In this area, Oriel's creativity and personality were quite vivid. It excited him to paint his nipples, which were very sensitive, a deep green color. He painted hers red or turned them into twin anemones or blue fish. After a while, this sexual experimentation and ornamentation was their main activity. <laughs> es- Esmeralda was too weak to get out of bed. And Oriel beneath his childlike laughter and spirituality was a master of sensuality. I think I am not sick, but that you drain my strength, she told Oriel at last. He looked depressed and said it had happened before, that he had that effect upon women and didn't know why. <laughs> he then mentioned that he had lost that she had lost much of her sweetness and always wanted to quarrel. What he, Oriel, wanted was serenity. She complained that he could not accept anger or express it. He tried to please her by expressing anger. First, it was contrived. Then he became violent, screamed in a falsetto and cracked mirrors, vases, and window panes with a hammer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you. Yeah, the, the ability to describe all these exotic events, let us say, um, is really wonderful. And, uh, you know, we wish we could hear everybody's writing for a very long time, but we really only have five minutes each. So, please, t- everybody, please be aware of that. Um, so we have three great writers coming up, um, and Helen Duberstein is going to be our next writer. Um, and I just excuse me one minute. Now, I, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with some of Helen's work, uh, but. It's always a surprise what she's writing about. She writes fiction, she writes poetry, she writes drama, and many other things, but especially I think those three, and she's also a wonderful artist. Um, so this is a, a very, like, triple threat person, um, and we get the benefit of her abilities. <laughs> uh, we're very glad that she's here, she's just come back from Cape Cod So for a long, she's been there a long time. So.
8: The blossoming with all kinds of publishing things, and I have I have some stories on the internet and the uh, novels coming out and the novella, and these are the sites in you know, available. So thanks. That. Okay, I'm going to read um, from the novel that's coming out called "The Thousand Wives Dancing," and it takes place in the summer of 1981 six months from September, five months from September through, uh, from June, from April through September. 1981, it was a time when our uh, friends who have been meeting every summer for many years, uh, couples mostly, where the women's movement began to impinge on the anxieties of the women and the men and uh, just came up in all kinds of uh, situations and um, a lot of the relationships broke up, a lot of them changed, and so on. So there are a lot of names that come at you in, the, in this little piece I'm going to read and you know, five minutes is five minutes. But um, I hope it'll give you a flavor of that time and that place at that time and the people involved. My ears are attuned to music tonight, she sighed, after that wonderful dinner. Ah, perhaps I miss it all, after all. Well, the name of it is A Thousand Wives Dancing, the name of the novel. My ears are attuned to music tonight, she sighed, after that wonderful dinner. Ah, perhaps I miss it all, after all, the opera. Miranda had been an opera singer in her long and varied life. The Chopin, she sighed, the Beethoven, Scott Joplin, now this, all in one night. Poor Naomi heard nothing, rapt as she was when they met her in front of the town hall, in her perpetual anger and pet peeves. She turned from her stroll to join them. This time the strings came live from the compact body of Matthew on the town hall steps, on the meat rack, playing intently until some man would engage him. Some man would come along and take him off to bed for the night. Miranda heard the music and wanted the boy herself, but she did not know that as she did not know Matthew's intent. Midnight, 1 a.m. The bar is empty at 1 a.m. Meeting with the others, Naomi listened to the sounds of the Spanish guitar. Miranda did not know it was Lori's eldest son, Matthew, to whom she listened. All she knew was that her bulk displaced a man. Who had been sitting on the bench. She listened contentedly to the music. Naomi, too, looked at the player. Naomi should have known Mark Matthews' work, but it was too out of context, and she was too out of sorts to recognize the street musician. She knew him all his life, saw him grow from scruffy babyhood to lost young manhood. Besides, what would he be doing here? when everyone knew he was fast asleep upstairs in the house on Bond Street. Did you learn to play the guitar in Spain? Asked Miranda. Right here in Provincetown, said Matthew. Right here and in Wyoming also. How did you get it all so pat, so authentic? It is like a square in Spain walking down here and hearing your music. The man whose presence Miranda had displaced on the bench near Matthew, glared through the dark at her and at Naomi and at Tom and Alice, too. Let's go. Naomi's thoughts tried to transfer themselves to Miranda. She suddenly recognized Matthew and did not want him to see her. Alice and Naomi exchanged glances. Matthew's eyes were turned inward. He did not see Miranda, though he answered her. From listening to records, he said, and from the radio, too, Just from imitation, said Miranda, how remarkable. What an ear. Naomi walked softly, slowly slowly swaying. Alice and Tom walked with her. Matthew and Miranda were intent on each other and the man intent on Matthew. Martin and Lori had each left the house on Bond Street. She to seek her son, who she had discovered was missing, and he to seek his wife. The friends met on the corner. Martin, having completed his quest, deflected Laurie from hers. All turned away from the town hall steps where Matthew continued his serenade, and Miranda and the gentlemen st- sat and stood and stared and sang along. There it is, said Naomi. There's the wind, wind blowing. You know there is a time in August when you listen for the change, when you hear a change in the wind and you know, the summer is over and you know, the summer is gone and you know, the summer is over and it's time for canning. It's time to go out to the beach, to get the beach plums, to set up the kitchen for canning. Beach plum jellies said Alice reverently. And the winds blow said Naomi and it'll never be summer again this, that year. All the tourists are gone. The summer people get ready to go and the wind howls more and more. The winter sky is there. Usually that's way in the middle or the end of August, sometimes only early in September. It's, it's only the beginning, it's only July for Christ's sake, said Martin. I'm hot, it's very hot here tonight, insisted Tom. Not only here, but all over other parts of the country. A veritable heat wave of people dying all over, persisted Martin, he was worried. In Texas it's 90 degrees, a record, and the old people are dropping like flies. Even Con Ed has suspended overdue bills so air-conditioners can keep going. An act of mercy, said Alice. In Texas it is, insisted Tom. Made, Made up easy payment plans for delinquencies so that the company doesn't have to shut down the power. Power to the people, yelled Alice. Give me the gives me the creeks. Let me tell you," said Naomi. "Like something out of Ray Badbury, Twilight Zone," sighed Tom. "I think it's a pipes. Yes, yes, yes. It's a. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay.
6: This.
0: go off, and, well, you know, with this wonderful writing, but it has to be fair to everybody, and we've said five minutes, and so it's the way it happens about life un- and art. Um, but it's beautiful writing, Helen, and I'm really interested in, in the whole thing that you're writing, and I'd like to hear more of it and everything. So we, we're always in a quandary here, because we, we have I think, all this good writing from every single person who's a member of our workshop and we try to be fair about it. if you get five minutes that means everybody else gets five minutes too and it's very difficult to be such a monitor about all this. Um, we have two more writers and you can say as well as in the beginning or the middle or anything. Two of the wonderful writers. This we're saving some of the best for last, right? You know, so this is how it goes. And um, the next writer is Peggy Harrington. She's going to read part of a novel. Now, Peggy is a member of our workshop um, who has joined this past year, and we've had the pleasure of hearing. Her work uh, set in different periods, including, I believe, something that was, I think, medieval. I, I may be not totally accurate about that this minute, <laughs> but uh, but but it was quite special. And and the quality of her writing is pretty terrific. So we now she's going to tell us what she's going ri- to read. But I have down here that she's reading part of a novel. So. thank all the people who are reading in the latter part of the reading. They've had the patience, among anything else, to listen to all the early writers, and so we want to give them a uh, rapt attention, <laughs> and, and you will be very pleased with what you hear. Uh,
9: the rapt attention before was easy. The writing's been wonderful. Thank you all. <laughs> um, this is the prologue of a novel I'm working on now, and... Um, will probably be a little bit baffling, but that's all right, it's the way I write. <laughs> I tend to, to write that in a baffling way. Uh, I haven't got a title to the book yet. It's tentatively work title, is called Moonchild. Uh, it's about memory uh, and murder. <laughs> this is the prologue. Three weeks, three weeks of searching every inch of puntable river of plucking at apes and sweeps and sinkholes and pocketed banks where she had roiled if only for the seasons of rain. 21 days of terror, of harrowed days and no nights worth speaking of when you could feel peril in the dusk and dread at dawn. That's what she said, the words first leaking then spilling forth when I asked. Two hundred fifty-two hours when their stomachs were rank, knotted, so there was no chance for nourishment to function there. Weeks, days, hours, even minutes. Aaron would have known, she said, that's the way he did his short life. Calculating and saving the numbers, sums of everything that called for attention. Finding order in the counting. He would have known the total, most likely in minutes and seconds. She hadn't the mind or heart for that. And all during that time of weeks and days and hours and minutes, there was the knowledge that you'd open your eyes one morning, slow, following the soft chime that Douglas had found to ease you into the day before he walked away. That you could open your eyes and hear the splash of water running in short bursts as Aaron prepared for his day before sorrow wiped away everything that had ever been between you to make your heart sing and took both son and father away. That wasn't my river, not the smoky or the Hudson, the Passaic, or the Nile. Still, I wouldn't be telling you this if there were no river, no rush of water, no flood tide. What I can tell you, what carried me there was this. Call it compulsion. Whoops. Call it necessity, necessity. I had to go. I had no choice. You see, it came to me one day, not unlike the shock of water dread, that I must write this story, Sam's that is, Samuel Gregorian Collingswood, one whom I have called brother, not perhaps as he might have it, not as he would will it. The time I walked away, the time he said to me, please, Jesse, please, understand. Tell it. It would not let me go. I must try. And so this I have to go back. To do this I have to go back, far and near, to search for witnesses, perhaps. But understand, how do you hold the spill of memory, a slipstream, a tear of water? Where does the dread begin? In the dark pool or sunny stream? I cannot answer, but I will try. It is, I believe, more a process like liquid suffocation. Understand? Might as well ask forgiveness, do penance, and have done with it. But he asked, you see, the Sam I have known never sought iteration, or cried for vindication, never asked for help. He would not have it if he could. Sam was, after all, himself. It is because he asked that I must try. Is because it was Sam, and because it is me, and because I too need to find an answer. Aaron's mother never asked. Still later, before it all went down, was there a plea that would have made a difference? Was there a time when anything would have altered the course? Should I ask about failure, seek to point a finger? Whose? Can I tell it, Sammy? Why? Crucify? Justify? Is that it? Can you tell me how? I think not. Not in this lifetime. It would be like floating sweet on the lap of the smoky, like speaking of trauma as birth, as metaphor. But perhaps that is the point, like a river, like the flow of all being and particulars, the particular odor and shape and feel and taste, taste of black earth, sweet earth. Know by the piquancy, the readiness for planting, taste of wheat kernels beneath the awn, of the slips of wild honeysuckle and bitter grapes, river watercress and oak grass, wild raspberries in the sweat of summer late July. Your feet must know the clay ooze that forms striations in the black earth running where the smoky ran. No Virginia, no hillspar, no unity. Forgive me if I stray. Killers aren't native. To unity.
0: Thank you very much. Pe- Peggy Harrington, you, you had, um, you know, something in that writing that makes you want to hear more and more. What is this going to be really all about? And everything is quite wonderful to have that sense of suspense and lovely writing. Um, So now we are um, the pièce de résistance, right? The last writer for tonight. Um, And and after we hear that, I just want to say very briefly uh, about uh, some of our other members. Um, But uh, this woman has had a lot of patience and she's been traveling all over the world almost um, in the last, you know, good part of the year. To do, do research and everything uh, about her book and about life, uh, I would imagine. And she is writing a book about the deconstructionist Paul de Man. Um, and she's going to tell us a, little, a tiny bit more about it, before, I assume, before she reads what she's going to read. Um, and, and this woman, uh, who we're eager to hear, here, we've heard a little bit. In our own group um, is Evelyn Barish.
7: Thank you, from this
10: woman. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, just very briefly, I presume it's sort of off the time spectrum. Uh, Paul De Man was probably the most famous intellectual for a couple of generations in this country, not just famous, but he was the most influential. Uh, he um, created uh, what's called deconstruction, and that, although he did not create what followed, that gave the basis for a lot of feminist th- theory, for queer theory, and for what's now being called post-colonial theory. I mean, these may not, you may not be directly rela- related to any of these, or you may be, but they are really still shaping the way people, especially young scholars, are thinking today. I just came from a conference where his name is there all the time. Even though after he died, after he died, uh, with full-page obituaries on the front page of the Times, five years after his death, it was discovered that he had been a collaborator during World War II in Belgium, and that discovery was created a violent reaction, uh, a firestorm, and a great distance from him. There were hundreds of articles but no- and some books, but nobody went to Belgium to find out what had happened. And indeed, no one really looked into the American side of the life either in a biographical sense. Um, and uh, so that's what I've been doing. Uh, and this... This section is the beginning, it's uh, the introduction to his new life. Uh, It's not about the stuff that happened that he did in Belgium, though it was questionable, uh, more than questionable. Um, It's called Paul de Man in the New World. When Paul de Man came to New York in 1948, he cut into the heart of its intellectual circles like a hot knife through butter, disembarking from a cargo ship on May 29th one of just three passengers on a freighter that took eight days to cross the Atlantic, he was a penniless immigrant without introductions, influential friends, or a visible history.
6: Within this shape, laid ready to be. Pl-